Let's, uh, let's pray together as we get started. Father in heaven, we just thank you for this church. This is your church, Lord. And I am so encouraged by your work uh, in this place and through your people and through us, Lord. Uh, you are a faithful God. And just believe and trust that you're doing amazing things, that you've got great plans and great vision uh, for our church. It's our desire, Lord, to serve you faithfully. And uh, we are your humble servants. And we know that you've called us into this world for this time and for this season, Lord, and so we are here to serve you. And so we thank you, Lord. And I pray, Father, as we just talk about some of these challenging questions uh, and items starting today, uh, that you would guide and direct to us. Uh, you know every person here. You know every story. You know every question. You know every experience, Lord. Um, I pray that you would show up in just a powerful way today and just bring us peace and encouragement as we seek more and more of you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hey, if you've got a Bible with you today, uh, I want to invite you to take it and turn to Romans chapter 8. If you've been around here for the last month or so, you've probably got a big crease uh, in Romans 8 because we've spent, uh, I think, four or five weeks there uh, now. And uh, if you want to use one of the Bibles around the room too, it's page 787. We're going to look at a number of different passages of Scripture today, but we'll certainly spend some time uh, in Romans 8 uh, for a few minutes. Uh, we're starting a brand new series today, as Steve mentioned, called Why I'm Not a Christian. Uh, in 1927, British philosopher Bertrand Russell uh, gave a lecture by the same title, and the purpose for that lecture uh, for Russell was to just outline his reasons uh, and doubts about God and Christianity and Jesus. And uh, many of the questions that he struggled with are questions that we wrestle with today too, uh, Christians and seekers alike. And so I want you to know that our goal uh, in this series is for some of you to address these big questions that maybe you've been asking, that you hear others asking, and hopefully address them in a way that uh, might help some of you, again, who have some serious doubts. But at the same time, and for others, I hope this series will encourage you in your faith and maybe at least better equip you for the conversations that you find yourself in where questions like these are being asked. Now, one of the things that I want to say right at the top of this series is this, that when it comes to faith, it's okay and normal to have questions and doubts, all right? It's okay and normal to have questions and doubts. I just think about some of the examples from Scripture. One of the first that comes to mind for me is John the Baptist. All right, John the Baptist had doubts uh, when he was in prison, and certainly knowing that he was experiencing the last days of his life, he sent word to Jesus, basically this question, are you the one, or should we expect someone else? All right, and so even he had some challenges in his own faith. Billy Graham has talked about times in his life where he had doubts, and I've had questions, and I've certainly gone through some times, and opportunity seasons where I, I've had questions and doubts. And you know what happens. I mean, life happens. You know, if you've been around church, even if you've been around church for a really long time, life happens. And when you go through difficult times, it's not uncommon for questions and doubts to arise. But I want to just say this morning that I think that that can be a good thing. Our questions, our doubts. I heard someone say that faith without doubts is like a human without antibodies. All right. And so working through your doubts, working through your questions with God, working through these questions, especially alongside of other followers of Christ, can actually strengthen your faith. I believe it can drive you into a deeper relationship with God. And so for the next four weeks, we're going to explore together a series of questions. And again, part of what we hope to do is to provide some biblical insight for you, at least some places that you know where you can turn 
You know, you can do some exploration on your own. I hope we can provide some encouragement for you too. But I will say that because there's only so much we can cover in about 35 minutes of time, and because my level of intelligence and understanding with some of these questions only extends so far, we also want to provide for you some helpful resources that you might consider spending some time with too. And you can find some books and some websites listed on your message notes today. I'd encourage you to check some of these out. We'll do that each week of the series. Again, we want to provide you some resources that you can look to for some greater uh, understanding. But today, I want to start with a question that according to the Barna Research Group is the number one question on the minds of Americans that they'd love to ask God, all right? And it's just this, if you haven't looked at your notes already, and that is that if there is a loving God, why in the world does He allow so much pain and so much suffering in this world that we find ourselves in? Like, where's God when a young person is raped? or murdered? Uh, why is there so much cancer? Why, why the terrorism today that we must face? Why, why would God allow so much innocent suffering in places like Syria? Here's how the, the argument tends to go in some philosophical circles. Uh, questions like, okay, an all-powerful God could stop the suffering, right? You've heard people say things like that. And so the fact that suffering continues mean that either God doesn't exist or He isn't all-powerful enough to at least manage or respond to the challenges that we face. That's one argument. Another argument says that, or suggests that the presence of suffering means that, well, that God must not care about me. Uh, and because if He can help and He doesn't, well, then maybe, well, maybe I'm just not of great value to Him. And so how can we say He's a God of love if He sometimes chooses to withhold that love? Here's the thing, though. For many of you, this question isn't so much an intellectual question or problem, but an intensely personal one. Because for some of you here today, you've gone through some painful seasons, you know, where you felt completely abandoned by God. Maybe that's where some of you find yourself even today. I mean, maybe you've prayed and you've prayed to get pregnant and you haven't been able to. Some of you here today, there's a good chance maybe for some of you, you've buried a child or uh, some of you have battled cancer. Some of you have watched others that are struggling, maybe died from cancer. And I think if we're honest, I'm sure we've all had a moment where we've looked to heaven and we've cried out, God, what's wrong with you? Like, why don't you respond? Where are you in all of this? See, it's in the midst of struggles like these and others that our faith is put to the test for every single one of us. And when faith is tested, we're, attempted, we're tempted to abandon our faith and to give up on God altogether. Maybe that's the case for some of you. Maybe that's some of the challenge, the pressure that you've been feeling is, what's it worth? Why does it even matter? I'll just give up on God. For others of you, it could be the reality of pain and suffering in this world that has prevented you from believing God even up to this point. I'd like to ask you to consider a question this morning. All right, if you just consider this question here today, like if we were to remove God from the equation, then what do you do with the problem of pain and suffering? What do we do with the problem of pain and suffering in the world if God's not a part of it? Like would, would abandoning your faith in God make the problem of pain and suffering any easier today? I heard uh, Pastor J.D. Greer explain it like this. He says, let's just assume for a moment that there is no God. And if there is no God, then, well, we can't really complain about things like violence and destruction in our world because here's what happens. We're, we're forced to conclude, in a world where there is no God, you're forced to conclude that that's just how things are. And again, if you 
follow the laws of evolution, then the only reason our species is here today is because it violently beat out all others preceding us. Again, that's how the survival of the fittest works. And so if that's our reality, then we really can't complain. And here's what Greer says, and I just suggest that you check out some of these resources, again, that we've shared here on the notes. You're going to find this argument laid out in greater and more extensive ways. But when you complain that violence and death aren't right, you're admitting at the same time that there has to be a transcendent, good purpose for the universe, which means that what you're saying is that there is a good God behind the universe whose purpose for it is being messed up. In other words, to say that there's a problem with pain is to admit that there is a God of the universe. Robbie Zacharias is brilliant. His uh, website is listed on your notes. There's a book there of his as well. But he says this, he says, when you admit to a moral law, you must postulate a moral lawgiver. For if there is no moral lawgiver, then there is no moral law. If there's no moral law, then there is no good. And if there is no good, then there is no evil. That's a big part of C.S. Lewis's story, if you know of C.S. Lewis. He, like many of us, struggled with the reality of a good God and so much suffering in the world. But what he discovered over time is that evil is more problematic for the atheist. In the end, he realized that suffering provided a better argument for God's existence than an argument against it. Now, I'll just say this, I know that's a lot to process, all right? And I've had the advantage of reading a little bit about it all week long, and I know that at the same time, it leaves so many questions still uh, to be answered. But here's, here's what I think, and, and maybe I'm wrong, but I think, I think I'm okay on this, that I think we all can agree, no matter where you are in faith, no matter what you think about God, but I think we all can agree that deep down, we all know that there is evil present in this world, that something's not right. And here's what I think some of you maybe need to wrestle with, maybe already are, maybe starting today, and that is that while evil is a problem for belief in God, no doubt, I get it. At the same time, evil presents an even greater problem for not believing in God. See, the point I'm trying to make is this, that you won't fix the problem of pain and suffering by abandoning your faith in God. And so the question becomes for us today then, well, what are we to make of it? You know, especially as followers of Christ, what are we to make of the challenge of pain and suffering in this world? Now, before I go any further, I want to say this uh, just to be clear. I, I certainly don't have all of the answers uh, to the questions of pain and suffering. I also want to say, too, that at the same time, I don't have a lot of experience with suffering in my life. Um, I really don't. I mean, my life has been relatively good uh, compared to probably what some of you have endured or maybe even are enduring right now. But I will tell you at the same time that I've certainly carried some burdens. We've gone through some really difficult things as a family, especially as an extended family. Um, I've wrestled with questions and doubts of my own. Uh, as a pastor, I've buried victims of tragedy and suicide. I've been in hospital rooms with grieving moms and dads in the last minutes of their babies' lives. Um, I've seen hurt. And even last night, to get a phone call from one of the men who attends our, our Noblesville campus just saying, hey, my sister-in-law was killed in a head-on car accident uh, today, and he was on his way to, to be with his brother-in-law and just asking me to pray with him. And for me, it was just the shock of that moment of, well, I'm certainly not living his life, but like, wow, how, why? A mom of three, you know, and leaves behind her children and her husband, and so... Again, while I don't have all of the answers to your questions today, I will say this, 
I'm a firm believer in the Word of God. And I, have, I am choosing to live my life uh, realizing that the Bible is a deep well of knowledge. Uh, it's of comfort and truth to us. It's truth for me. It's truth for our staff. It's truth for our church. Um, and, and I hope that maybe today you would consider the difference that it will make for your life too. And so even as I share a number of different scripture passages today, maybe you'll be writing these down and spending some time with these verses even on your own, thinking about how they apply to your life. And so we want to look to God's word today and even right from the top here, I want to identify three reasons for pain and suffering in this world. Now this isn't an exhaustive list, but three reasons for suffering, for pain in this world, uh, for pain and suffering in this world. And um, I also want to add too that there have been several sermons that I've been reading over the last couple of weeks preparing for today that have certainly contributed uh, to this work uh, here this morning that have been helpful to me. But uh, three reasons for pain and suffering in this world, it's this. If you're taking notes, the first one is sometimes pain and suffering is the result of our own sin. All right? We, we bring it on ourselves. I mean, think about this. Think about how it works out. Like if you drink and drive, uh, you might take your life or you might take someone else's life. Uh, if you don't watch your diet, heart disease becomes a real uh, possibility. Uh, if you fail to establish boundaries and disciplines in your life, you might end up in a financial disaster or worse. If you sleep around, you might get an STD. Uh, the Apostle Paul describes it like this in Galatians chapter 6, verses 7 and 8. He says, Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to please their flesh, well, from the flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the Spirit, from the Spirit will reap eternal life. And so some suffering is the result of our own sinful choices. At the very same time, other times suffering comes as a result of the sin of others. Right? And we all certainly have people in our life that we love, people that we come encounter with, and so sometimes it's their sin that contributes to our own pain and suffering. The second thing is this, sometimes pain and suffering is just simply the result of Satan and his work in this world. The Bible calls him a liar. Uh, the Bible calls him a deceiver, the enemy, uh, the prince of darkness. We know from Scripture, as we study Scripture, that he's real, and that at least for now, he has been permitted to exist with limited power in this world. Jesus described him this way in John chapter 10, verse 10. He says, the thief, he's talking about Satan, comes only to steal and kill and destroy. And so some pain and suffering in this world is the result of Satan and his personal attacks. But I believe that most suffering is the result of this next one. And that is that number three, sometimes pain and suffering is the result of just simply living in a fallen world. Uh, we live in a fallen, broken world world. And so to the question, if God is a God of love, why earthquakes? Uh, why hurricanes? Why terrorism? Why cancer? Well, for us as Christians, it goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3 when Adam and Eve sinned and the world was infected by sin. We, we kind of illustrate it like this. And if you were here Easter weekend, you heard uh, Steve or you watched Steve illustrate this on a whiteboard, but on the screen too. I, I think if there's one thing uh, that we can all, most of us agree on today, again, it's the circle over to the right. And that is that we live in a broken world. All right. We live in a world of brokenness. We live in a world uh, of death. Uh, people suffer, uh, people encounter hard times. I mean, there's just this feeling, this reality that something isn't quite right. Now, how did we get to this place? Well, as Christians, if you look over to the left, that, that circle on the left, we believe that God had a design for this world. God had a perfect 
plan, a plan that involved harmony in this world, that involved people getting along, it involved the world free uh, from disease, from pain and suffering. And so what happened? Well, the arrow extending over is, well, sin. Sin entered the world. Sin separates us from God. Sin is choosing to do your own thing, to go in your own direction, to take your own path. And so we find ourselves living in this broken world uh, today. If you look at Romans chapter 8, if you're turned there right now, Let's actually skip all the way to verse 22 for the sake of time. Uh, Here's how Paul describes that reality of living in the broken world today. He says in verse 22, We know that the whole creation has been groaning, as in the pains of childbirth, right up to the present time. In other words, the whole creation is out of sync. All right, the whole creation is out of balance. Uh, Pastor Bob Russell says it like this. He says, the air is polluted, the water is contaminated, the ground is poisoned, the weather is affected, and our bodies are vulnerable to germs, disease, and aging. Now, here's the thing. We know that as Christians, we know and believe that God has provided a way through for us in Jesus Christ. And we know there is a day coming when Christ will return and God is ultimately going to restore things to the way they were intended to be, His design. But in the meantime, for every single one of us, and as followers of Christ today, we live in a broken world. We live in a world infected by sin, and we are called as followers of Jesus to live in this world. The church is called for this world. We're not just here by accident, all right? You're not here to just simply weather the storm for something else, but Christ has called you and me to live as salt and light in this world, to be the hope of Jesus Christ, to suffer in a way that others look to you and say, how could it be so different for you that you are able to suffer with that hope and with that strength and even that joy and perspective? And so with that in mind, I, I want to suggest uh, something for you today uh, to consider when it comes to pain and suffering and and maybe specifically your pain and suffering today. And while I can't promise that what I share with you today uh, will make sense of everything that you've ever had to endure or go through or will certainly satisfy every question that you have, I hope that what I have to share with you in this remaining time will at least offer some perspective. And if you're willing, it's this perspective that I think has the potential to at least open your eyes to some explanation to the point of pain and suffering in our world and it's this, when it, when it comes to, to pain and suffering, that God can use it. When it comes to your pain and suffering right now, whatever it is that you're facing, whatever that one thing is for you, I want you to know and be confident in the fact today that God can use it, that God can bring good from it, and that He can bring something very beautiful out of your pain and suffering. Look at uh, Romans 8 again. Skip back to verse 18. And without going into it, you're just going to have to trust me on this. The Apostle Paul had a lot of experience with pain and suffering, okay? And you can read about those in different places in the New Testament. But look what he said about uh, the experience of suffering. He says in verse 18, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Basically, here's what he's saying. Paul says that when it, when it comes to eternity, all right, like if you look at life with an eternal perspective, all right, and especially as followers of Jesus, we know there's some great promise, there's some great hope in the life that we have before us with Christ that will not come to an end. He says, our temporary afflictions, even what you're going through right now, in light of eternity, are not worth comparing 
to what God has ahead or what he has in store for you. I think that what Paul is trying to help us understand is that like, this is a perspective we've got to have as Christians. It's one that we've got to come back to over and over again. He says, hey, if you're going to endure suffering, please have an eternal perspective. You're not going to endure your suffering outside or apart from an eternal perspective, and so you've got to keep your head up, and you've got to keep looking ahead to the day that is coming. Paul says it like this in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16 and 17. He says, Therefore we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day, for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Uh, C.S. Lewis, I love what he says, and I'll just paraphrase this. He says, hey, when it comes to our present suffering here on this earth, heaven will be greater because of it. Because of what we endure today, heaven will somehow even be greater because of what you endure or you're enduring right now in this world. Let's look at another verse in Romans 8. Skip over a few more. Romans 8, 28. Again, by Paul, he says in Romans 8, 28, and we know that in all things, some things, most things, he says, no, in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. He says, when you experience something really bad or really great and you wonder to yourself, how in the world could something good come from it? What we have to learn to do as followers of Jesus Christ is embrace God's word as truth for us. We need to be renewed by it each and every day, and we need to hold on to the promise of Scripture and even these words that He can, that He is more than capable, that God can bring good from it. He can bring good from your very worst days. He can bring good from your very worst appointment. He can bring good from your very worst news. And that doesn't mean that we'll see it all in the beginning. It doesn't mean that it will always be easy. But as followers of Jesus, we must learn to hold on to the hope that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. I don't have the time to tell you my stories today, but I've certainly got some stories in my life where I've seen God work this out, play this out. I hope you have stories like that. I'll just say that I've seen how God is bringing good from some difficult days we've experienced even here in our own church, all right? Because in all things, in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. He's a faithful God, and he is more than capable of working all things for good, even in our pain, even in our struggles, and in our suffering. So here's what I want to do before we wrap up today, uh, just to kind of round out here what we're talking about, I want to ask you to consider some good things that God can do, that God can produce from your pain, our pain and suffering, even beginning here today. There are some benefits that Scripture speak of that can come out of our suffering and our pain in this world. And so uh, quickly, they're in your notes right there at the bottom of the page. The first thing is this, that God can, that God can use our pain and suffering to discipline us. Now, I know you must be thinking immediately, okay, that doesn't sound like a benefit to me, like bad place to start, right? Like what, what good can come from discipline? But think about that for a second. Think about disciplining your own children or why you discipline your own grandchildren. Why do you do it? Well, you want them to grow, right? 
You want to help them shape and form their faith and their character. You love them too much to see them uh, develop bad habits or to go down a destructive path. Here's what the writer of Hebrews chapter 12 says about this discipline. He says uh, in verse 6, The Lord disciplines the one He loves, and He chastens everyone He accepts as His Son. He says, Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as His children. For what children are not disciplined? By their father. Now, I do want to say and add that I don't believe that means that every example or instance of pain and suffering is an example of discipline by God, but these words do remind us that God will use, that God will discipline his children, that he indeed disciplines those he loves. I was reading this story this past week about several years ago, a Boston College professor uh, and philosopher by the name of Peter Kieft, uh, Kieft was uh, interviewed on the topic of God and, and suffering. And Kieft said this, he says, imagine a bear in a trap and a hunter who, out of sympathy, chooses to liberate the bear. So he tries to win the bear's confidence so that he can unfasten his leg from the trap, but the bear has no idea what's going on and he thinks that the man is going to try to harm him. So the, finally, the hunter has to shoot the bear full of tranquilizers. The bear, however, thinks this is an attack and that the hunter is trying to kill him. What he fails to realize is that this is being done out of compassion. But then in order to get the bear out of the trap, the hunter has to actually push the bear further into the trap to release the tension on the spring. If the bear were even semi-conscious at this point, he would be even more convinced that the hunter was his enemy who was out to cause him suffering and pain, but the bear would be wrong. And he reaches his incorrect co conclusion because he's not a human being. And then Dr. Kreef just allowed this to soak in uh, for a moment. And then he said this, he says, now how can we be, anyone be certain that this isn't an analogy between us and God. He says, I believe that God does the same to us sometimes, and we can't comprehend why he does it any more than the bear can understand the motivations of the hunter. As the bear could have trusted the hunter, so we can trust God. And so in the same light, the Lord disciplines those he loves, and we may not always see it, and we may not always understand and sometimes it hurts, and it hurts deeply, but he disciplines us out of love. He disciplines us to protect us from an even greater harm. The writer of Hebrews 12 continues on in verse 11. He says, no discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. And so the Lord disciplines those he loves. The second thing is this, that God can use our pain and suffering to comfort us. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, Paul writes, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles. This is definitely one of the ways that God is working for the good. All right, working for the good for those who love him in all things. And because... Well, because he desires to have a deep and an intimate relationship with you. He can use your pain. I want you to know that he can use your struggles, even those that you're facing right now, to draw you into a deep, intimate relationship uh, with you, to bring you closer to him. I don't know if you've ever heard the story of Johnny Erickson Tata or not before. Her picture's here, and I'm not sure if you can tell her or not, but she's actually sitting in a wheelchair uh, when she was 17 years old, she experienced a diving accident in the Chesapeake Bay, and she's been a quadriplegic since. 
uh, living out of a wheelchair now for almost 50 years. And along the way, she's impacted millions for Christ as she has shared very honestly about her own faith and struggles and pain, but also the comfort that she has found in her relationship with the Lord. I was reading one interview uh, with her this past week that was just so good. And I just listened to her perspective here. She says, I, I, I sure hope that I can bring this wheelchair to heaven. Now, I know that's not theologically correct, but I hope to bring it and put it in a little corner of heaven and then in my new, perfect, glorified body, standing on grateful, glorified legs, I'll stand next to my Savior holding His nail-pierced hands uh, in my own. I'll say, thank you, Jesus. And He'll know that I meant it because He knows me. He'll recognize me from the fellowship I now share in His sufferings. And I will say to Him this, Jesus, do you see that wheelchair? You were right when you said that in this world we would have trouble because that thing's been a lot of trouble for me. But the weaker I was in that thing, the harder I leaned on you. And the harder I leaned on you, the stronger I discovered you to be. It never would have happened had you not given me the bruising of the blessing of that wheelchair. And this is just so good also. And she's got an incredible sense of humor. She said, you know, even after I say all of this to Jesus, I'm going to turn to him and ask him to send the wheelchair to hell. All right, once and for all. But she does go on to describe again that moment when we're with Jesus and there'll be no more pain and suffering. You know, the Lord Jesus will wipe away every tear as the scriptures say. And then listen to this, listen to these so words. They're so good. She said, I find it so poignant that finally at the point when I have the use of my arms to wipe away my own tears, I won't have to because God will for me. This is a woman who knows pain and suffering, and she has found and discovered that it has the potential to push you away from God or the potential to draw you close to Him in ways that you have never or could ever imagine possible I want you to know today that the same is true for you and for me and for all of us, that God can use your pain today. He can use your struggles to draw you close to him, and he will, as he has for this woman, comfort you and satisfy your needs like no one else or anything else can in this world. And for Johnny, she has experienced the personal benefits, and God has used her to impact millions with her story but that leads to the next benefit, again, in your notes, that God can use our pain and suffering to also give us greater influence with others. Uh, he did that for Johnny. He can, he can do that for you. Uh, as his children in this world, God can use your pain and suffering uh, so that you can be of help to others. And sometimes he'll do that by giving you a platform uh, like he has for this woman. Other times, he might have a smaller audience in mind. Sometimes for us, his audience for you is your family. Uh, his audience for you might be your coworkers. His his audience for you might be students in your class right now or at your school or your neighbors and friends or even one person in your life who maybe doesn't know the Lord. I mean, maybe God has strategically placed someone in your life right now, someone he might be calling you to disciple, and your story might be just that one thing that draws them even closer to the Lord. Uh, again, look at that passage from 2 Corinthians uh, 1, 3, and 4. We, we read it just a moment ago. I, I cut it off soon. He is, he is the one, God of all comfort, verse 4, who comforts us in all our troubles. Look at the second half of verse 4. So that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. You see, when we go through difficult times, when we have tough experiences, it can enable us to 
help others who go through the very same things or similar things. I mean, haven't, I bet some of you have found this to be true. Man, I bet for some of you, you've gone through some things and you've gone through some difficult challenges and maybe the, the most helpful person is the person you encounter who's actually gone through the same experience. And so can you see how God might want to use your pain and suffering and the way you respond to it for the sake of someone else in this world? The last thing is this, that God can use our pain and suffering so that we can better appreciate Jesus' suffering. Uh, Philip Yancey uh, tells a story, and I think it's in the book that I actually listed on your notes there, about a guy by the name of Dr. Paul Brand and his uh, visit to a leper colony in India. And Dr. Brand went as an observer uh, to this leper colony, uh, but the people were so appreciative of him being there that they insisted that he say something. And so Yancey records that he stood in front of these lepers not knowing what to say, but being a hand surgeon, all right, Dr. Brand couldn't help but notice their hands. And here are all these lepers with their hands, and some uh, where their hands were drawn to a cloth for others, uh, missing fingers. Most of them were sitting on their hands or finding some way to hide them from his presence. And Dr. Brand said this, and Nancy records, he says, you know, I'm a hand surgeon, so I always notice people's hands. Uh, a palm reader says that he can tell you about the future by looking at your hands. I can tell you something about a person's past by looking at their hands, whether they're calloused or their fingernails. I can... I can sometimes tell something about people's character by their hands. He said, I love hands. And he could tell that when he started talking about hands that the lepers were somewhat self-conscious. And so he began talking to them about the hands of Jesus. And he said this, he says, you know, I would have loved to have met Jesus Christ and just been able to shake his hands and feel his hands and mind. And knowing that the kind of person that I think he is, I think I could say something of Jesus' hands. And so he started describing Jesus' hands as a little baby and his tiny fingers in the manger reaching out and holding the finger of his dad or the awkward hands of the little boy Jesus maybe holding a stylus and practicing the letters of the alphabet. Then he started describing the hands of Jesus the carpenter, strong and gnarled and bruised with splinters from working with wood. And then he talked about the hands of Jesus the physician, sensitive, compassionate, powerful hands, touching people who were blind and making them able to see and people with withered hands and making them well and blessing little children. And then he talked about the crucified hands of Jesus. And he said, man, think about that. He said to these lepers, like it hurts me to think about Jesus' hands being crucified because it's almost impossible to drive a nail through a hand without paralyzing it. And so Jesus' hand, he said to them, was clawed and paralyzed when he died on the cross. And it said that there was an observer that day with Dr. Brand as well, and he started describing the atmosphere in that leper colony as electric, as for the first time they thought of Jesus paralyzed. Jesus clawed hands like my own. And then Dr. Brand said, you know, the most fascinating thing to me is to think about the resurrected hands of Jesus. Usually when we think about the resurrected body, we think about it being perfect. But when Jesus arose from the dead, he said to his disciples, what? It is I, come see my hands. And even invited Thomas, come put your finger into my hand. And then he concludes this. He asks, why would Jesus carry with him the scars for all of eternity? Could it be because he wants us to have them as a continual reminder of what it was like to suffer so that there would be that ongoing understanding that Christ suffered and hurt for us too? And as Dr. Brand finished his talk, it is said that all those lepers almost simultaneously quit hiding their hands 
and instead lifted their hands in praise to God and thanksgiving to Dr. Brand and the familiar sign of Indian respect, namaste. Those gnarled, clawed hands, those stubs, those fingerless palms now held a new dignity, a new sense of worth because Christ's own response to suffering made their suffering a little easier. And again, this is in Philip Yancey's book, Where is God When It Hurts? But then he adds this, and I'll close with this. He says, the surgery of life hurts. It helps me, though, to know that the surgeon himself, the wounded surgeon, has felt every stab of pain and every bit of sorrow that you and I might ever experience in this world. Let's pray. Father in heaven, it's a, it's a difficult question and probably an incredibly difficult question for some here today, and that is why in the world do we suffer? Why in the world must we experience and encounter pain? Father, I pray today that in just some sweet, special way that could only be accomplished through your presence and through your spirit, that you would encourage our hearts and our faith that you would create in us, that you would put in us a desire for more of you, Lord. And as we cry out and as we reach out to you, God, that you would respond in a way that we know is true and good and satisfying and maybe just what we need to get through this day. You are a faithful God, and we thank you for providing for us a son in Jesus Christ who went to the cross and gave his life and who understands the pain and suffering and yet has accomplished for us victory at the same time. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.